The Bob Murphy Show, episode 83. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show got a short fun one for you today Gene Epstein passed along the fact that he had been interviewed by someone. Uh, her name's Greta, and she goes to college in the New York City area who was doing an honors thesis on libertarianism, or specifically, what do libertarians think? And she was looking to interview other people, and I asked her if I could record it and release it as an episode of the podcast, and she said, sure. So that's what this is, and as I suspected might happen, I ended up discussing some things in this conversation that I don't normally talk about, specifically like my views on voting and the political scene, stuff like that. So that's what you're in store for. Hope you enjoy it. Um, So just actually to kick things off, I'd love to hear how you became a libertarian. Okay. So my dad used to listen to Rush Limbaugh in the car. And so he, for people who don't know, he's a uh, radio host on AM radio, and he would call himself a conservative. And so this would have been, I think, when I was like in eighth grade going into high school is when, you know, he would, my dad would just be driving me somewhere and he'd be listening to it and I would hear it. And that was the first time that like I had heard anyone say, just because there's a government plan to do something, it might not achieve the desired goals. Like I really, I mean, that sounds ridiculous as I'm saying it to you, but that was the first time I'd heard someone articulate that perspective. It had never really even occurred to me before. Mm-hmm. I thought anyone who disagreed with the government's programs just didn't like poor people or, you know, just was greedy or something. Yeah. And, um, and then my, and my dad also had this thing called the conservative chronicle that he subscribed to. So that it came in the, you know, so this was before the internet or, it, or at least before people, regular people use the internet mm-hmm. and it came in the mail every week and it was just a, a compendium of all of the op-eds, you know, the things at the end of the A section of newspapers from opinion columnists who were considered conservative. And I just, as I read that every week, I would look forward to it. And I just realized after a while that the ones I liked the most were by Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, who were economists, and especially Walter Williams. He was actually more libertarian. And so just the more I started reading into that stuff and realizing, oh, it's, it's not like conservative politics I really care that much about. It's free market economics. And I just got more and more into it and realized, okay, I'm actually not conservative. I'm libertarian. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want the government meddling with voluntary things in social issues either. It's not just, you know, the minimum wage, but also drug laws and things like that. That seemed more consistent to me. And uh, yeah, and so that's really what it was. So by, I don't know, probably sophomore year of high school, I'm guessing I would have called myself a libertarian and then I just kept going more and more, you know, reading things like Murray Rothbard was, you know, this is probably the single biggest influence on my thinking in that respect. Mm-hmm. So then if you could describe maybe in just like a couple of sentences, what is libertarianism? So libertarianism is, I guess, the, in the branch that I'm in, they would say it's people who are committed to what's called the non-aggression principle, or they sometimes just abbreviate the NAP. 
and that says it is immoral to initiate aggression against somebody else. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a complete description of morality. You know, it's there's plenty of things that could be immoral that aren't initiations of force. It's just saying it would be immoral for you to initiate aggression against somebody else. So just to give one example of the distinction, you could be a libertarian and think it's immoral to use heroin. But if you're a libertarian, you also think it would be immoral for you to try to use force to stop someone who is, you know, peacefully using heroin over in the corner, not bothering anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I'm really interested because, like, obviously, we don't have a ton of libertarian candidates running right now. What is it like for you as you're thinking through how to vote for someone if you don't have a libertarian candidate on the ticket? Okay, so here I actually don't vote. Mm -hmm. And it's. And so I know you've been talking to other people and there's differences of opinion among especially radical libertarians. So some go so far as to say voting is itself an act of aggression. You're sort of like legitimizing the state apparatus. So unless you were, you know, voting for someone who is a total anarchist or something, you know, you're implicitly condoning. So I don't I don't go that far. It's a tricky subject. But for me, it boils down to my vote isn't going to matter on the margin, like whoever I vote for or whatever I do is not going to influence who the next president or governor or representative in Congress is. And so why would I do something that's meaningless and that I don't actually agree with, right? So in other words, I could see an argument for voting for the lesser of two or three evils if you're voting third party, if it would actually make that person get in and say, oh yeah, I know that person's not exactly what I want, but it's better than the alternatives. But since my vote's not going to actually put that person in office anyway, it seems really goofy to me to waste my time and to get all fired up about the political process when my actions there per se don't, don't matter. So I, the the only benefit I see of the political process right now, at least is just that it's interesting. And like, you know, when Ron Paul ran for president recently in the last two attempts, it was a vehicle for bringing his message to a lot of people. So I'm not sad that he ran, Mm -hmm. but I actually didn't vote for him just because I didn't vote for anybody in those last two cycles. So that's my perspective on voting. Yeah. Is there, do you see policies that are interesting to you from non-libertarian candidates? I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but but sure. Like for for example, I'm really interested in Tulsi Gabbard, Mm -hmm. even though she's obviously not anywhere close. (laughs) She's on the same zip code as libertarian on a lot of domestic and social issues. But I think it's fascinating how, you know, somebody who is, on paper, you would think she would be an ideal progressive candidate because the right can't hit her on the war issue. She has way more credibility on foreign policy than like Donald Trump does. Mm -hmm. So you think she'd be the ideal candidate to run if what you wanted was, you know, higher minimum wage, universal health care and all that kind of stuff to running it. But of course, you know, the, the, the Democratic establishment is doing everything in their power to minimize her influence. And I suspect it's because both of the major parties really benefit from the warfare state. Mm-hmm. No, that's so, so, so yeah, so that would be an example. I mean, uh, anybody who, I can't think of anyone on the top of my head who was talking about this, but anybody who would be talking about secession, for example, I would be very interested to, to listen to what that, or even just say like federalism, mm-hmm. old school federalism, I would be interested in. So yeah, it's, it's not that I'm a, a purist. I'm actually, it's funny. I actually get criticized, A, for not supporting like Gary Johnson the last election. I didn't, it wasn't that I was throwing bombs against him, but to me, he was not a good spokesperson for the libertarian message. And so I wasn't really throwing my weight behind him and telling people, oh, check out Gary Johnson, because I didn't think he was a good spokesperson. And if for me, 
you know, I knew he wasn't going to win. So to me, the whole point of him running and supporting him would be, he's a great person to articulate the message. And I didn't think he was. So it's ironic that people were criticizing me for not, you know, supporting the cause and being too purist. And then now though, when I tweet nice things about Tulsi Gabbard, mm -hmm. I also get hit from some rank and file libertarians who say, Oh, what are you doing? She's not libertarian. So it's, you know, I kind of get it criticized by it. libertarians like to criticize everyone. Yeah. As you, I'm sure you've saw, seen. <laughs> Basically you can't win. <laughs> Um, oh yeah. What do you think is wrong with politics in America today? Well, I'm not going to be saying anything profound here, but to me, it re it really, the older I get and look at it, it's so blindingly obvious that it's the, the two party partisan framework where each cycle, most people actually dislike or even hate the guts of both of the major parties candidates. It's just the other party's candidates scares them even more and so they, you know, oh, I hold my nose and they go vote for, you know, their their party's person. And then it just keeps alternating. And and, and then, too, because they're such hypocrites, it's like when people correctly point out genuine flaws with, you know, your side's people, it, rather than just, you know, dealing with that and saying, oh, you're right, maybe I should stop supporting, you know, all these Republicans keep voting for bigger government, even though I call myself a traditional constitutional conservative, maybe I should stop voting for them. Instead, you say, oh, yeah, but look at you know, which, what you guys did when you were looking at what Obama did, you know? So it's, you know, that, that just perpetuates the whole cycle. It's, it's kind of a brilliant system. If you really think it's more, which I do, that it's more cynical and that there are people behind the scenes, you know, trying to groom the candidates and just making sure every election, the Republican and Democratic nominee really aren't that far apart, even though rhetorically they might appear to be and the people writing fundraising letters and we got to get out the vote. We'll make it sound like the other side's candidate, you know, is, is from the devil. You know, I would say they're both from the devil. <laughs> and so that, that there's the actual consent. And you see it too, like when John McCain dies and how many people just, you know, Oh, it's, it's like Superman dying in the comic books and everybody shows up to offer, you know, it's the, this so-called centrist position that everybody has to toe the line for. Um, it's it's really amazing to me as I get older to see how much that... Like, for example, just so you see where I'm coming, when I was younger, I thought, like, the New York Times being a left-wing newspaper was very anti-war and against the troops. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, as I'm even saying this to you, I realize how absurd that is. No, the New York Times is totally pro-U.S. empire, even though they might, you know, pose as being very concerned about collateral damage or whatever. But when it comes to cracking down on, you know, how do, how do we cover Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning or whatever when those stories were breaking? I mean, the, the New York Times was not uh, the, the anti-war beacon that I used to think when I was younger. And like when people like Rush Limbaugh would tell me, don't trust those liberal Democrats, they're soft on foreign policy. And I realize now how, how ridiculous that is. Yeah. Do you think that Trump runs sort of the same centrist line as past either Republican or Democrat representatives? Uh, it's, so he's a, he's an interesting thing. So even as I just sat there and told you my diagnosis of American politics, mm -hmm. it was even occurring to me that I was going to do a big giant asterisk and say, except until Donald Trump came along. Yeah. And so I still, you know, I think partly we're living through it and you kind of need some, some distance in order to get perspective. I'm not sure this is going to answer your question, but I think he was a genuine aberration. He was an outsider. And I think he just ran for office as a publicity stunt. Like, I think he thought it was hilarious and, you know, he's a narcissist and just liked all the attention. And I think it was even surprising to him that he won. 
I, know, I mean, surprised most everybody. I think even Donald Trump was probably amazed. I can't believe I won. <laughs> and I, so I think a lot of, I don't even think he had policy, because you know what I mean? I think it was kind of like he was winging it. And then, you know, as it got more and more of a serious thing that maybe he would win, he starts, okay, I got to get some policies here and bring in advisors. And so I, I think it's, it's more like Trump just shoots from the hip. And so half the time his instincts are good and half the time they're horrendous. But from my perspective, that that's better than the people like the establishment where they're, you know, carefully honed, you know, systematic agenda is almost all horrendous in my book. Yeah. And so that that's kind of where I'm comfortable. And also too, the thing that people hate about like like serious politicos and like like career politicians or uh people who have worked in government service for their whole careers, that's the thing they hate the most about the Trump is what I like about him is that he's denigrating the office. He's making it a laughing stock. And, you know, people referring to like the sacred office of the presidency. And I don't think it should be sacred like that. That's offensive to me Mm -hmm. that people would use that term. And so to the extent that I think in in some perverse sense, there's like this religion of the state in U.S. politics when someone comes along who desecrates it, (laughs) you know, that that to me, that's actually a good thing. So I think Trump is I'm certainly not endorsing a lot of what he's doing, like the policies of his administration. Some I do like, but. Um, I do think like the the very things that a lot of people hate the most about him. So I realize I'm rambling here. The thing that drives people crazy about Trump is not that big of a deal is what I'm, what I'm getting at. Like, in other words, he's doing some horrendous things. People could arguably make the case that he's committing war crimes by like supporting what's going on in Yemen and things like that. But that's not why people are flipping out about him. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's it's, really. it's more like words he's saying aren't, you know, that he's, saying unkind things that would be politically incorrect things that normally the person would apologize and just gracefully bow out of the scene. And he didn't care. Yeah. And so he kind of shattered that hold that people had right before his campaign. I mean, there were several times during his campaign when I thought he, I was sure he was done because anyone else who did what he did or, you know, those axis Hollywood tapes, you know, just the icing on the cake, he clearly should have been done and he just didn't care and kept going. And so I think that that's why a lot of people were against Last thing I'll say on that is, when I started taking him more seriously and realizing something was odd here was when National Review ran a whole issue dedicated to critiquing Trump. Because I know it's not that the people associated with National Review are up at night worried about the feelings of Mexican immigrants. That's not why they were against him. So that's when I said, wait a minute, if progressive liberals hate this guy's guts and the right wing hawks are coming out against them, something's going on here. Yeah, that's a good point. You might know this, but libertarians, when they do vote, are like much, much more likely to vote for Republicans than for Democrats. Why do you think that is? That doesn't surprise me at all. And I I notice this in myself, too, where I still will have a soft spot for Republicans because so I think the quick answer is, at least in the United States, a lot of people who are coming into libertarianism do it the way I did through like a free market economics route. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure you know, what the cause and effect is there, the chicken and the egg. But I think, it. you know, so I'll, I'll share some quick thoughts on it. I think some of it has to do with economics as a science, especially as it used to be, was very, um, showed the limits of government intervention and how standard government policies to quote, improve the economy or to ensure more equal distribution of wealth or what have you to help the workers, to help the poor. Would, would be counterproductive, would backfire, would give you results that were actually worse than what the original problem allegedly was. And so so people who stumble upon free market economics and get into that, that's going to be the first, you know, so whatever their normal views were originally, that's going to first, they're going to become pretty libertarian on economic matters. 
And then I think it's only through consistency that, that, that then permeates more to social areas, you know, like, oh, gee, if the, and then the last thing usually to drop, at least in my case, was foreign policy, mm-hmm. you know, because it was more of like, well, wait a minute, if these politicians can't even fix the inner city with housing projects and minimum wage laws and drug prohibition, why would they be able to fix the Middle East with a bunch of troops and missiles? That doesn't make any sense. It's the same people. You know, if I'm calling them buffoons and power hungry tyrants in one sphere, why would I trust them to be bringing democracy abroad? That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's why then, if you, you know, in terms of your own, one's own evolution, at least if you're going that path, you would first, you know, be cleansed of your desire for government intervention in the economic realm. And so in, ter- in terms of the two parties, the Republicans are the ones who are, quote, good on economic issues. And so th- that so that doesn't surprise me that for a lot of libertarians, it's like, in other words, somebody like with, with the Trump administration, for example, it's a lot of, uh, you know, some of his advisors and free market people or whatever, they were with him until he really started ramping up tariffs. And then they said, I can't support this guy anymore. And, and I know there were some progressives that like, oh, so you were fine with all of his horribly racist comments and the stuff he was doing at the border. But because, you know, he raised taxes on imports, that was the last straw for you. And I, I can see how, like, in a moral sense, yeah, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, yeah, because the immigration, that's a much more tough question that involves culture and blah, blah, you know, and voting patterns and things like that. Whereas with tariffs, that's such an open and shut case in terms of the economics that if you've studied free market economics, you just know that's so stupid what he's doing there. Yeah. So I don't know if that's helping to answer your question. I think that's partly what it is, at least in the U.S. Kind of, I, I can't speak to libertarians abroad, but no, that makes sense. for me, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially if it's people coming from an already conservative politic that that actually makes a ton of sense. So let's say that we started over tomorrow with a libertarian system in the United States. Do you think that would be fair to people who've traditionally found it harder to move up in society? Well, I'll certainly say this, that, well, yeah, the, the people right now who are like in the lower income deciles or whatever you, you know, terminology you want to use, you, right. I think the best way to help them so that people right now who are making under $15,000 a year and how to get them so that they're self-sufficient upper middle class within 15 years or for sure so that their children, you know, have a much more comfortable middle class lifestyle than, yeah, I think getting rid of the welfare state, getting rid of drug laws, getting rid of occupational licensure, getting rid of truancy laws, so not forcing kids to go to government schools, you know, getting rid of accreditation, all all those sorts of getting rid of uh, the FDA, getting rid of, you know, licensing for, for doctors to bring down and, and pharmaceuticals to bring down medical prices. That's to me. Yeah. Like, so it might be a shock, you know, you, I'm sure you could come up with specific people where the combination, that suite of policies I just said that might hurt them in the next year or two. But on the other hand, also, if you're like getting rid of most taxes, I think, churches and other nonprofit philanthropic organizations could rush to make sure nobody's genuinely, you know, starving to death in the street. Mm -hmm. So, but so, yeah, I think all those things that are in in place definitely like lock in a cycle of poverty and that the only way you're going to fix that is to rip the bandaid off to use a a metaphor. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the things that we have that are supposed to protect people are doing the opposite. Right. Right. And also too, to keep in mind, I mean, so certainly there are people who are in bad economic situations in the United States, but relatively speaking, even today's poor in the United States, 
are still pretty wealthy by global standards and even like compared to poor people in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, I mean, nowadays, like there's even homeless people that have iPhones and things like that. They can go into the library and get on the internet if they wanted to. So again, I'm not sitting there saying, Oh, it's fine to be home. I'm, you know, I, I realize people, um, you know, have it much worse than I do. And I don't want to sound uh, callous there, but I, I think like some of the more serious problems are, are like drug addiction or, police brutality, things like that, or the fact that, you know, they have to go to these schools that don't educate them and, and then they're expected to get a job and they can't because there's minimum wage laws that make it hard to get that initial job. And there's occupational licensors. So even people who find a niche and they have a great product they're offering to their neighbors that, you know, the government comes in and shuts them down. I mean, there's lots of crazy stuff like that where uh, the government quite explicitly is the enemy of, you know, the poor and disenfranchised. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a very succinct way to put it. This is a question, this is sort of one of my final questions I get to everyone. Um, do you think that racism and sexism are prevalent in America today? Um, if you defined it loosely enough, then then yes, right? So in the sense, do you think most men are a little bit sexist? Sure, if, if what you mean is, you know, like if they drive and somebody's driving the way they don't like and they get up and see it's a woman driver think, oh, figures. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, probably a lot of guys think that or if you say, hey, who, who do you want fixing your car, a man or a woman? Yes, I'm sure they carry around stereotypes and things like that. But if you mean, uh, hey, the, the conventional statistics on why do men tend to earn more than women is that mostly because of completely arbitrary discrimination and prejudice, I would I would say no, I, I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, and, and like, so with... With racism, I mean that it might be worse now than it was when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and I I think there's just because so this is going to be self serving coming from a white guy, mm-hmm. but I I think partly what happened was yeah it was it was dying down you know in other words you know my generation was certainly less racist than my parents' generation and I can even hear you know I just offhand remarks from older people about like an interracial couple or, or something you know what I mean it's not that they're saying oh they shouldn't be doing that but just little comments that I realized like, yeah, somebody my age would never say something like that, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's real. And I definitely get how, yeah, the 1950s, the U S was much more racist, but I think that was dying down. And then I think there has been a resurgence of it because, or at least in part, because um, it was so just, you know, rammed down your throat for so long that if you're a white heterosexual male, you know, you're the cause of mostly all the world's problems that at some point finally, some people snapped and said, okay, well then we're going to start organizing and I'm going to be, and I'm proud to be white. And the fact that like you're allowed to be proud of any other demographic, except if you're white, that that instantly makes you Hitler. If you say that, whereas, you know, a black person saying I'm proud of my black heritage, you know, people give them a high five. Good job. Good for you. So, and again, I understand there's reasons for that discrepancy. I'm not uh, denying that. And I understand where that comes from, but I'm just saying on the surface, I kind of understand how, you know, certain people or like, you know, men's rights groups and things like that, how they, after a while are like, you know, this, this is kind of crazy that we're just being lectured to like, everything's our fault. Well, well, no, look at divorce proceedings. You know, the women typically get custody and blah, blah, blah. You know, so I, I think it was because of the constant, um, the, the gains against conventional racism and sexism that once they eradicated most of what, you know, were genuine outrages that then they kept extending it to things that were less and less serious and more and more trivial until the point where finally there was a backlash. And so I think I've seen that, you know, my own lifetime. So that's my long way of saying in general, 
I don't think there's it's it's systematic. I think a lot of the things people point to as evidence of it are actually due to other factors. But um, I, there is I, I do agree that like the relations between men and women or between the races right now is probably more heated than it was when I was younger. And I I disagree with the conventional exploit. Oh, yeah, it's because Donald Trump got elected. It's like, OK, well, why did he get elected? You know, that kind of stuff. I am interested because you brought up the pay gap, um, mm-hmm. but you say it's not because of like interpersonal sexism. Do you have like, do you have any concept of what might be leading to that? Oh, sure. There's, there's lots of stuff. So I don't have the figures right at my fingertips, but it's, it's, it, it, it depends which figure you're looking at. So some of the people quoting, you know, a number and saying that this is the pay gap, you know, so go figure. Some are more responsible than others, but some of the, like the grossest examples it's just a completely raw number where it's um, like saying, you know, here's the, the earnings of men. You know, you come up with a number and, you know, I guess divide by the number of men and here's the earnings of women. And then look at those two numbers, like not even accounting for the fact that men work more than women. And I've seen some, too, that even if they limit it to full time workers of men and women, still full time male workers tend to work more hours per week than women. And, and some of those statistics that you see don't even account for that. So that's one thing. There's other stuff too, like men tend to work in more dangerous jobs, like driving taxis, being coal miners, stuff like that. And so in general, there tend other things equal, a job that you're more likely to get injured on or killed in pays a higher wage. Just, you know, that, I mean, that standard economic theory, that makes sense yeah. that you have to be compensated. And so to the extent that men tend to go into those occupations more, that's another reason you'd expect it. Um, so when you, if you try to do a more head-to-head comparison, like never married academics with a PhD in a particular field, like ec- economics or something, I'm pretty sure there's actually an advantage for females, right? So like, again, I'm making this up, but like, I think a 25-year-old female with a PhD in economics from a given school who has who is not married, I think she probably makes more than a male with this PhD I guess, from the same school who's 25 and not married. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, so it's, I'm not disputing that there are those differences, but I don't think it's due to the fact that, you know, there's inherent sex to to, to use a silly. And I know this example strikes a lot of people as obtuse and you just don't get it. But I mean, just to make the point, there's a lot, you know, black people are in the NBA more than white people. Do I think that's because all the organizations are anti-white? No. Right. And so you can then say, well, what is it about our culture? Why does it happen to be? And blah, blah, you know, and you can speculate as to what it is. But it, to me, it's obvious it's not that there's all these white people that are out there who are much better at basketball than the people who happen to be in the NBA and they're being excluded because of anti-white racism. Mm-hmm. That's not the explanation. So likewise, I mean, just just to think about it, if it were true, if there were really all of, you know, if, if women were all systematically being underpaid, the flip side of that is all these corporations are systematically overpaying men. Mm-hmm. And so in general, like the critique of U.S. corporations is their money grubbing you know, all they care about is profit and they'll shut down a factory and outsource it to Mexico or to Thailand or whatever, take advantage of low wages. And yet they hate women so much. They won't just lay off some men and hire some women, even though according you know, to the critic, the women are just as good. They're doing the same job. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like they would have to really hate women so much more than they like money for that to be true. And that you're saying that's systematically true across all the corporations in the country. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No. Yeah. I hear where you're going with that. Cool. Um, that's actually, we've hit most of the points that I had questions about. So do you have anything else that seems sort of relevant to your libertarian identity that we didn't cover? Sure. So yeah, I, I would just wrap up by saying, 
I think most people, when they hear the concept of libertarianism, you know, described as, oh, I don't think people should initiate aggression against others, you know, who haven't initiated against them. That sounds great. You know, who would deny that in the abstract? But then, you know, just about everything the U.S. government does right now violates that. And so, you know, I think the the reason most people recoil and say, okay, that's impractical is just, well, we need the government to do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, all these horrible things would happen. Mm-hmm. And so I would say a lot of what happens in people's, you know, gradually coming over to libertarianism is doing reading and one by one, each of those alleged horrors, they realize, oh, wait a minute, they got rid of the minimum wage law might actually mean teenagers could get jobs more easily. Maybe that wouldn't be the bad thing. And gee, if they got rid of, uh, you know, if governments privatize the roads, then maybe there would be higher prices at rush hour. So you wouldn't have traffic jams anymore. Maybe that's actually not such a bad thing. And, you know, going through and so it's it's more re, you know realizing this abstract principle that seems good, but you just find totally impractical. The more you read up on it, the more you see, huh? Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe the world would be a better place if we more consistently embraced freedom and liberty. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. That's all I've got. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Sure thing. Thank you. And that was my discussion with Greta, who's doing her honors thesis on what libertarians think. Perhaps some of you. Saw a side of me that you haven't seen before. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.